Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we can come and uh, be here on the Lord's Day, rest from our weekly labors, enjoy fellowship with the saints, enjoy the means of grace, and Lord, we pray for this additional hour of Sunday school, that we can come and just uh, better understand who the person and work of Christ is, and help us all the more to be grateful and to live in accordance to what he commands. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are once again in chapter 8. We will be getting paragraph two today. Remember, the chapter here is titled Christ the Mediator, and it's flowing after uh, chapter seven, the last paragraph, which, which was dealing with Christ being the mediator of the covenant of grace, the covenant by which we are all saved through. And um, so in paragraph one, recall, we have a summary statement about Christ the mediator. Um, so we went through that and several uh, several sessions, we saw that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the only mediator between God and man. He's our, the savior of the church. He is the heir of all things. And he is the one who also uh, is able to redeem us, justify, sanctify, and glorify us by his finished work. So today we're looking at paragraph two, and it's it's going a little bit more in-depth about that, and it's particularly wanting to talk about the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation. And so this is a very crucial paragraph here because there's a lot of different heresies that come about from a misunderstanding about the incarnation. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we dive into our paragraph, but let's read paragraph two together here. So it says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things, he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin." Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole perfect distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So as you can see, a lot there. Um, and it's, it's necessary so we can understand uh, what the Bible teaches about these things and affirm these things and clarify also what it doesn't mean. So this paragraph will probably take in a, at least a couple sessions here. But uh, it's dealing with the incarnation, and the incarnation is very important for us because if Christ is going to be our mediator of the covenant of grace by which we're saved, we talked about last time as our mediator, he is the perfect representative between God and man. So he has to represent God to us fully. He also has to represent man to God fully. And so in the incarnation, it's really crucial to the gospel, <clears throat> Without Christ, our mediator, as our representative, without him being truly God and truly man, uh, we don't have the gospel. And so throughout church history, this has been a very uh, huge area where a lot of heresy has flown out of, just because people haven't been super careful about it. 
So um, let's look at this in just these different sentences that we see here, and let's start evaluating these things. So notice it says, uh, it identifies who this person is, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So notice if, if this chapter here is, is meant to uh, reflect back to chapter 2, where it talks about doctrine of God. A lot of this might even be some review, because in chapter 2 we went over many of these things, because that which can be said about God is also said about Christ. So he is fully God, he is the Son of God, and now they're identifying here, it's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the second person. Um, so it's helpful to understand this. Now, if you remember in chapter 2, they didn't use the word person, remember that? They used the word subsistence, not a word we use very often. And uh, do you remember the idea behind that, why they chose that? So remember, the idea of person or persona came from the idea of uh, an actor in a play. Someone could put on a persona, can put on a mask, and it can be one person yet uh, put it, playing different roles. And so, just to further clarify, they didn't want to <clears throat> they didn't want to communicate uh, something like that. And so they used the word subsistence, which isn't a word we use very often. It's a word that describes being of one substance, but there's, there's uh, areas within that comes from that substance. So subsistence was the word they used to clarify. However, as you see here, they're, they're not saying person is a bad word to say. Um, they're saying when it comes in terms of Trinity, this is the common way of saying it. Um, Dr. Renahan writes this. He says, um, he says interestingly, they employ person rather than subsistence, as they used in chapter 2. This may indicate while subsistence is preferred when contemplating the Trinity as one and three, person is appropriate term when speaking more directly of Christ's manner of being. So just some clarification here. They're not against the word person because they use it right here. But when speaking of the Trinity and doctrine of God and how we talked about, about it back then in chapter 2, uh, they did prefer the word subsistence. Um, but they're not against the word. So they say person. Um, so here they want us to assert uh, technical language when dealing with the person of Christ in a way that emphasizes his fullness of his deity, but also the fullness of his humanity. So notice we see his deity in three ways. First, we see his personal identity being the Son of God. So this is the second person of the Trinity. Now, and so we don't start thinking, well, this is, you know, just he's lower in tier or he's different uh, than God the Father and a different person altogether. Uh, they say being very an eternal God. So Jesus isn't a lesser God. He, his divine nature is clearly stated. As we see it focused on chapter 2, the deity of, of who God is, chapter 2, paragraph 3 particularly, Everything said about God can be said about Jesus. He is very God. He is not like God. He is not a lower tier God. He is very God. Right? He is God in very being. What that means is uh, God is spirit. Right? We see that uh, in chapter 2, God is not like us. He doesn't have body parts, passions, different things like that. So in John 4, it says God is spirit. 
Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So when dealing with the person of Christ, they want us to focus first, let's understand him in light of his deity. Let's affirm his deity, that he is truly God. He is very God, and as such, he's also eternally God. In other words, he's always been God. He has, uh, he is God, always been God. There never was a time when he was not the son of God. Uh, this means he is not created. He is not a created being. Uh, you hear the kind of the Mormon church out there, right? And the Mormon church would say, well, Jesus was you know, kind of merely a man. He came into this world. He lived a good, perfect life that we're supposed to live. He then uh, sacrificed himself, and it's through that work that he did here on the earth that he now became a god. And so then, that's our model. If you two want to be a god, you have to do what Jesus did. Obey the commandments. Do these things. And uh, you can be a god as well. That's really like what the Mormons are teaching. And this is saying here, no, he was eternally always God. He didn't earn his deity by what he did on earth. He actually was eternally God from the very beginning. So there really is no beginning or end. That's the idea of eternally God. Um, He is very and eternal God. So when we see that, we really should start going back to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, let's just flip over to chapter 2 real quick. And just remind ourselves of some of these things. When we affirm the Trinity in paragraph 1, it talked about uh, the Lord our God is one living being, or one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, in other words, his persons, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended uh, by any but himself, most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality. Okay, and it goes on and on there. Um, paragraph three, uh, we see them as, as they t- speak of each subsistence or person. It spoke of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Word. Um, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It says one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet each essence undivided. Okay, so. This is understanding that this, the Son has always been God, and he, everything we understand about who God is, we need to see it in light of the Son as well. When we think of his incarnation, we want to think of his deity as well, not just his humanity. Um, so he was always God. Any questions so far, just based on what we've covered? So a lot of this should really be a review from what we've seen in chapter 2, so... Uh, Notice what else it says here. The brightness of the Father's glory. The brightness of the Father's glory. What do you think that means? The brightness of the Father's glory. So what do we associate light with, right? Light is something that illumines. Light is something that reveals, right? So when we see brightness, I want you to think light, Um, glory, manifest. So this is actually a phrase that was added by the Baptists here. Uh, It's not found in Savoy or Westminster. It's something that they actually carried over from First London. And they wanted to add this because when we think of the person of Christ, um, he is the revelation 
of the, who the Father is. He's, he reveals who God is. He's the brightness or revelation of the glory of the Father. In other words, that which we see in the Son, is ref, he's reflecting. He reveals who the Father is to us, everything that is true. Right? Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You can understand that as brightness. Or John 1.18, Jesus says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, he himself. John 14, 9. Who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying he is the one who reveals the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I am the brightness, I am the reflection of who, the exact glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Um, so he reveals to us the nature of the Father. Um, and so that's the, the statement there that they wanted to emphasize, that he reveals to us who God is. Um, right? By virtue of him being called the Word, the word is something that reveals to us, that lets us know something. Um, so any thoughts on the brightness of his glory? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's a good good thing to look at because yeah, when you think of Moses, he's beheld the glory of God, right? And he um, he reflected it back as he was in its presence, right? So it's kind of like uh, we we gave the analogy. Well, what's happening there? You know, his 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 face shone. Well, his face wasn't the source of the light. It's that he was reflecting the source of the light, right? It's kind of like the the moon reflects the light of the sun. Um, that's what Moses faced. He was in the presence of the Lord, and it, and it reflected, the glory reflected. Well, Jesus basically is reflecting that, right? When we see in the, um, uh, in the uh, transfiguration, right? Jesus is, glo- is shining. He's radiating. And we're supposed to think of that back to that image. And it's not because he's reflecting. Uh, he's, he is the source of light. Um, and so... Those are, that's a very good thing to see. Um, and so the glory that we see back in, you know, with Moses, if Jesus is the one who reveals the brightness of the Father's glory, very well uh, was possibly Jesus there, pre-incarnate Jesus there, who Moses saw. Just on the word glory, um, we have, you know, most people have a, a, a very diminished view of that word glory, if we truly understood God's glory in that sense, we would view Him differently and view ourselves differently as well. Mm-hmm. That glory, the word glory is a very, very important word. 
Mm-hmm. That I think goes unnoticed. You just kind of go through the verse and glory of God. Okay. Yeah. That's, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Yeah. There's, so there's a lot there with that word glory, and I see it uh, going hand in hand with also the word holy. Right. The glory, glory and holiness of the Lord uh, is is something that we see. That I think, you know, we don't have such a. We're tempted to not see the glory of the Lord, right, as greatly. Um, and we just see him, oh, yeah, God's our buddy or whatever. Um, but uh, when we understand his holiness, it's a reflection ultimately of uh, he's otherly. He's so much superior. He's far grander than we can ever imagine. And, yeah, R.C. Sproul book, The Holiness of God, I think we went over with the men, um, really helped us connect the idea of holy and glory together there. So, um, yeah, when we see that, uh, you know, we can say Jesus is the Holy One of God, right? Because he's reflecting his glory and his holiness. So, yeah, there's a lot there. And, and uh, I think when we, that's why it wants us to really see his deity first on display here. So when we see the humanity, we don't think, oh, well, he just left all that deity behind. Or he's no longer that. He truly is that. Um, and so it's important to start off with his deity. Let's understand, he, this is tr- truly God, the, the one who created everything. So, yeah, good. Any other thoughts on that? Glory, a brightness of the Father's glory? Brian? Well, the whole situation here of Christ and revelation of Christ, you look at as exactly that revelation. Because we being the beings we are aren't able to comprehend God at all. In a form, you have to look at it as God's condescending to have a, a way to approach us uh, that we can actually tolerate and survive. Mm-hmm. And you think about how first he started, and you know, Moses could even look up in glory, and it came all the way down to Christ coming to earth, yet after he was crucified, it, it blinded Paul. He couldn't even see that revelation afterwards in glory. Mm-hmm. So it, it just you think about it, it. It's God's condescending because we, we couldn't even, number one, we're not capable of understanding it. And number two, we're not physically able to survive yeah. this revelation. Right. No one can see God and live. Right. And it's because we're sinful humans. But the thing about the that makes... Um, Heaven so great, new heavens, new earth, is when we're glorified, we're going to be given bodies that we can behold the glory of the Lord, um, have that kind of capacity. And that's a great hope that we'll be able to see God. Um, Other thing that's sad that we have to remember that um, as much glory as he had and as Moses they shine because he was a sinful being, even though he did great things. It faded the glory. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the neat thing about the new heavens, new earth, uh, when we read a revelation, it talks about, you know, uh, there's no need for the sun anymore because you have uh, the glory of the Lord there that's shining, that's illuminating everything. It is the source of light, right? So you don't need a physical, you know, star to provide light for us, you have, you have the Lord. So, all right. Um, let's look at this next phrase here. 
It says, of one substance and equal with him. Okay? There's a lot here. So, of one substance. Again, this is going all the way back to chapter 2, right? Uh, He is of the same substance or stuff, if you will, of God. Um, So, he's equal with him. There's not different degrees of substance. Now, um, he's of the same thing. He's equal. Everything that can be said of God can be said of Jesus. Uh, we, we can say it this way. He's co-equal with God. Um, he's not an angel. He's not a lesser God. Uh, rather, he's equal in worth and value of all that is God. And that idea of substance is um, everything that makes up God uh, can be said of Christ. Uh, there's not different substances uh, and so there's this heresy, and we'll, we'll dive into more heresies here uh, in a bit. But this one in particular, um, you've probably seen the meme during Christmas time about um, you have a Santa Claus figure, and then you have this child sitting on his lap saying, Homoousius or Homoousius. And Santa Claus is like, What? He's like, You're not the real Saint Nick. <laughs> And if you understand church history, you'll understand what's happening here. So in the first council of Nicaea, um, Arius was, was presented, uh, his view was presented there. And he was trying to show his view as orthodox. And he was trying to say that uh, Christ is uh, actually not fully divine. He's like divine, but he's not truly fully divine. Um, and it came down to this word that has just one difference in letter. Um, and it, it made a conflict by this name, guy named Nicholas. I forgot of where he was from, but he's known as St. Nick now. And he had a conflict with Arius over this term. And it was homoousius or homoousius. Homoousius uh, means of the same substance. Homoi means similar in substance. And so Arius says, yeah, Jesus is, is like God. In other words, he's, he's similar in substance, but he's not exactly the same. Where Nick and, and the council of Nicaea would say, no, he's homoousius. He's of the exact same substance. Um, and so this affirmed that Jesus truly is the Son of God, and he's of the same substance with the Father. Um, and so Arius was then condemned as a heretic, and... There's a legend, it's hard to say if this was true, but Nick got so fueled by this that he slapped Arius in the face. Arius was condemned as a heretic, and Nick had to be placed on discipline. (laughs) But he is not homoousius, similar in substance, but homoousius, same or one substance with God. He's made of the same stuff as God. Um, now, there's a lot more heresies that are similar to these things that we'll talk about. But uh, any questions or thoughts on, on those things there? Is that clear what we're talking about with substance? Or is that kind of confusing? We can go back to chapter 2 and look a little bit about that, if that might be helpful. Yeah, stuff... Kind of, yeah. Um, so God is spirit. Um, the qualities and attributes that make God who God is, eternal, um, all glorious. Um, 
there's a, if you go to chapter 2, it talks about uh, these attributes of God, these incommunicable attributes, things that are unique to God, right? He's divine. He's infinite. He is, uh, he is uh, immutable. He's absolute. He's holy. He's almighty, eternal, immense. That we, that's what we can say is the stuff that makes up God. That's unique to God alone. Um, and all glory, goodness, and blessedness is in and of himself. So he's the source. Everything of that flows out of who God is. Um, so he's a, the reason this is important when it comes to the person of Christ, if he is not God, if he is like God, you know, he's a very powerful being, he's much greater than us, but he's not exactly the same substance as God. Well, when, it's, when only God has the power to forgive sins. And so this comes all the way back to the gospel. If Jesus truly isn't God, and he doesn't have the power to forgive sins, he can't do these things like um, pay for all our sins. You need someone who is fully eternal, uh, truly God, who is able to pay for the sins of everyone, which otherwise they would have to pay for all eternity for themselves. Only God could do that. Um, and so the next phrase, equal with him, everything said about God, again, is said of Christ. He's equal. They're the same uh, value and worth. Um, and in case we start to think, well, this is kind of a, maybe he's a lesser God or a different God who came into being later. He says, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he had made. In other words, this is the very God who created the world, who created all things. It all goes back to doctrine of God. Everything we can affirm about the doctrine of God in chapter 2, we can say about the person and work of Jesus Christ. God condescended, took on flesh, but his glory was veiled for a time uh, as he was with men. Um, and so this is, this is crucial. He was still fully God as he uh, came, became incarnate, as he put on humanity. Second um, Corinthians says this, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the very God who spoke uh, light and darkness, separated those, who created the world from the very beginning, is seen, notice it says, in the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has made him known. Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And this is the very God from the very beginning that created the world. So our mediator, the reason this is emphasized, is our perfect mediator is truly and fully God. Um, and this is crucial to affirm. He's not anything less than very God. Um, and so it puts up first his deity on display here. As, we, as we're thinking about this in our confession, uh, in the incarnation we need to affirm he is truly, fully God, and then he's also truly and fully man. Okay? So that's as far as the emphasis of his deity. Any questions there. Okay, well, let's get into his humanity a little bit. Um, notice it says this phrase, when the fullness of time 
was come. What, what is the fullness of time? How does scripture use that phrase in particular about Christ? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so it wants us to keep in mind all of redemptive history, right? God had created a plan before the foundations of the world in which he is going to send Jesus. He's going to do these things to pay for sin, to bring about the elect. Um, Jesus is, uh, when he comes, it came at the fullness of time. In other words, we can say at the perfect time or the appointed time, right? This is the, the, the time that uh, God had appointed from before the foundations of the world um, in the garden, he wasn't surprised when Adam fell. He knew ultimately he was going to send Jesus at a particular time in redemptive history to redeem uh, his people. And Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So it's reflecting all of redemptive history. Ellen? Yeah, in a particular aspect of it, yes. So the covenant of redemption, we can say, is the overall plan. So it was the fulfillment of when Christ would actually come, but there's still more of redemptive history that's in the covenant of redemption that still has to happen. He still has to return again. He still has to consummate and judge the living and the dead and consummate his kingdom and bring in the new heavens and new earth. That's all still part of what he's called to do. Um, but yeah, we can see that as a point of redemptive history that was appointed back in the covenant of redemption. Yeah. Um, but when we think of that too, think of, think of the Old Testament and the scriptures. What were they all looking forward to? They were looking forward to that Messiah who would come. They were looking forward to the seed who will crush the serpent's head. They were looking forward to the seed of Abraham who will come, who will bless the nations. They are looking forward for the king who will come, who's greater than David, who will sit on the throne forever. And it's saying, when the fullness of time came, everything that the prophets and the Old Testament saints looked to came when Jesus became incarnate. Um, the fullness of time happened. So it's a reflection of all redemptive history and God's eternal purposes fulfilled at the exact perfect time when he sent Jesus into the world. So when the fullness of time came, when uh, we can think of maybe a, um, uh, what do you call it? Those little time things that you flip over? Hourglass. Hourglass, yeah. You can think of an hourglass that God had particularly counted every grain of sand and when the last grain of sand will fall through, that's when Christ will come. So from the beginning of the world, that hourglass came and everything is moving towards that time until Christ would come. And it's right when that happens. It's the perfect time. God had orchestrated all things for that to happen, right? The exact time when uh, the Roman Empire had to come to power so that the crucifixion will have to happen by way of a cross, right? All these things that we can see happened at this time uh, that brought about... um, as it was planned from the very beginning. And when the fullness of time happened, notice it says, uh, taking upon him man's nature. So this is dealing, man's nature is all his humanity. For him to be our perfect mediator, he needs to represent us. So if he is truly and fully God, which we already affirm that he is in the first few sentences here of the paragraph, he also has to represent us. 
but God is without body, parts, passions, things like that. He's without, um, he, he is spirit, right? It's impossible for God to die. So how can all these things be possible for him to be like us in every way? How can he take upon man's nature? Well, he needs to, he needs to have a human body. He needs to be like us um, so he can represent us, so he can be our true substitute, right? A lamb was just a picture. It wasn't actually a true human who was being sacrificed for someone else's sins. That's the only way you can have forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus had to become a true human like us. So the next sentence here uh, talks about what it means to, maybe it elaborates more, what it means to have man's nature. Notice it says, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. When you see this word essential properties, that means everything that is to be human. He had a human body. He shares what we share as humans, right? This includes our common infirmities. He was not some superman. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. So he grew tired. He hungered. He thirsted. He wept, right? He did all those things because he was like us in every way. He can sympathize with us in the midst of our weakness. John 1, 4, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, the God, deity, became flesh, dwelt among us, yet without sin. So, Sin is not an essential property that's common to the infirmity of man, uh, but it's a result of the fall, right? It's the result of the fall. It was added to the meaning of man as the curse came about. In the creation, in the beginning, uh, that wasn't so, right? Man was made perfect without sin, but the fall uh, brought sin into that. It was added to humanity. So Christ came in his incarnation. He came without sin. And it's going to elaborate a little bit more about how he can come without sin. But we can view this as he came into the world like Adam did. He had a human body, a human nature, but contrary to Adam, he didn't come in paradise. He didn't come in a garden. Instead, he came in a wilderness and a desert that was affected already by the fall and sin. So Jesus had to have a body like us, and a body and soul like us. Uh, Romans 8 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So a lot of good things there with Jesus becoming fully human. 
Now, you might have heard it said, well, Jesus is 50% God or 50% man, or 100% God, 100% man. I, uh, we don't want to say parts. I don't agree with the statement 50% God, 50% man. He's fully God, fully man. Uh, we could say 100%, but even that, you know, I want to say more truly God, truly man. Uh, it gets at everything that God is and everything that man is. Jesus was those in one person. So one of the ways we can try to affirm this is, one, the more we try to affirm just basic stuff and trying not to, um, trying not to ponder all the intricacies and understand there is still mystery here in the incarnation, uh, we'll be a whole lot better off and more guarded against heresy. Um, when it comes to the incarnation, um, or when it comes to the person of Christ in particular, we can affirm this. He was one person who had two natures that are unmixed and undivided. They go together. Okay, so if you affirm that statement, um, you can see how uh, a lot of heresies came from not affirming that. One person in two natures whose natures are unmixed and undivided. So they go together. Now, I'm just going to talk about a few different heresies as we finish here that came as a result of a misunderstanding of that. Okay, now there's a lot. You can probably go um, on some websites and find uh, heresies over the nature of Christ. And there's tons of them, but we'll just talk uh, about a little, bit, a little bit of them. Docetism uh, comes from the word uh, doxis, which means to seem. So this taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body, but was not truly incarnate. So in other words, he wasn't really a real man. He only looked like one. Um, this denies the true humanity of Jesus. So these are, these are heresies that arose from the tension of trying to understand how can God, how can we be fully God and fully man yet in one person? These are heresies that resulted as a trying to over-explain these things. Um, so docetism denied his true humanity. He just appeared human. Arianism, which we talked about a little earlier, um, was very similar. Rather than affirming or denying the humanity, it denied the deity. Said he is only similar to God. He's not the same as God. He only looked like God, but he's not really God. Right? Um, this denies his deity. Kevin? Okay. Yes. Yeah, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, you can see a lot of different aspects of false religions that have come from these misunderstandings. Yeah. It sounds like they're just trying to put them in a box. Yeah. They can't comprehend because it's he, they are <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's... Exactly. Right. I think, you know, it's hard for us to affirm there's a mystery here. And we need to accept there's a mystery. And we don't have a, you know, we're not a God-man. But so how do we explain this? And this is men, sinful human men who are trying to comprehend this thing, which is hard. But it's better to just affirm the kind of what I said in that statement there. Um, and just say, there's a mystery here we don't fully comprehend, but we know the Bible says this. Brian? Think about it. Heresies. Interesting. Once you go down that road, really, can't in the scripture. 
then you're free to do whatever you want. The other big thing he came up with was, no, Adam, it wasn't a covenant of works where he was going to live forever. Adam was bound to die. That, you know, the whole idea that he was not going to die uh, wasn't true, according to Eris. So when you take away who Christ is, then you can just say, well, we were all going to die anyway. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of other theology can be impacted by a misunderstanding of the person of Christ. So that's yeah, that can be an example there for sure. So Arian, all these things are were condemned as heresies. Arius, as we talked about, um, was condemned as a heretic for him just saying God he's similar to God, not the same as God. Um, Apollinarianism. This denied that he didn't really have um, a human soul or a human mind. Rather, he was he had a true human body, but rather he's more like an avatar, right? It's a it's a body that is there, but God's there operating it. Um, so this denied that he was truly and completely human uh, because it taught he didn't have a human mind, but instead uh, his mind was completely divine. And he says this human. This heresy lessened the human nature of Jesus in order to reconcile the manner which Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. So um, we can see that he wrestled with these things, right? He had a human, uh, human mind, human soul, where he wrestled with these things, right? We see him saying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's him in his humanity speaking from his soul that... He doesn't want to go through this. No human being would want to go through that. But um, in his deity, he knew this was the only way. And so for us, that boggles our mind. How can, how can we explain that? But um, there's a mystery here. And the more we try to explain, we can dive into heresies. Uh, Nestorianism. This was another heresy that uh, denied that Jesus was uh, really one person. So what this did is it separated the two natures so far apart, it almost made each nature as a different person. So it emphasized uh, the nature of God, deity, but also the nature of his humanity so far apart that it sounded like rather than it being two natures in one person, you just have two different people altogether. So the opposite of that, I don't know how to say this, but... Eutychianism. Um, it's uh, also from the Monophytism of the fifth century. Uh, this this taught the opposite of what I just emphasized. Rather than separating the two natures, it kind of mixed the two natures all together. So kind of like milk and Ovaltine, you just stirred it up until it's one thing. Uh, it confused the two natures so much that it denied that he really even had two natures. So we're out of time, so let's, let's go ahead and kind of pause there. We'll pick up this next time, and, uh, and, we can, and if you have questions on these natures or these, heres- these different heresies that confuse the natures, uh, we can talk about that more next time. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time, and we thank you that we truly have the perfect God-man, one person and two natures, undivided, Um, And so, Lord, we thank you that Jesus fully represents us and fully represents you and provides the only way of mediation.
So Lord, help us to then trust in Christ, our perfect high priest and representative for us, who laid down his life for us so that we could live. We thank you for him in Christ's name, amen.